0: Welcome to Fright
1: Night. She just goes a little mad sometimes.
0: Wolfman's got
1: They're coming to get you, Barbara. Whatever you do,
2: don't fall asleep.
0: We have such sights to show you. They're all gonna laugh at you!
1: You're listening to the Jersey call. Cool. Hey everybody. What's up? And
2: welcome back to another episode of the Jersey Goals where today we are ringing the bell, dusting off the old trapper keeper, getting my pencils nice and sharpened because today we are going back to school. Oh, back to school,
1: back to school to prove to dad that I'm not a fool. We're going going in the way back machine, getting to the Mm -hmm. hot tub time machine because we're trucking it back to 1920
2: that's right and today <laughs> with us is a very special guest a person near and dear to our hearts here at the jersey ghouls an oftentimes guest and an always bestie katie Moyer. thank you so much for joining us today guten tag <laughs> oh oh, oh. Um, der yeah, Kaberstan, we- right
0: <laughs> I'm so happy to be here Guten Tag. 1920s, it's German 1920s, which is just, you know, it's like my favorite. But even though of it's super it depressing, and
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, let's let's hop into the time machine to a place in between two world wars. Oh, no, we we're, are- we're bringing the fun. We're bringing the fun to that.
2: <laughs> oh man, if this ain't the Debbie Dowder episode, I don't know what is. But yes, we <laughs> have decided that in honor of September, in honor to the magical return that is the beginning of a new school year, we are going to brush off the textbooks and bring in some of our smartest friends, like Katie, and chat about the history of horror. And we are going to school ourselves. We're gonna get an education. This, this oh man, call. I
0: made a really good, uh, smart impression there,
2: didn't <laughs> you did it's it's the glasses <laughs> thank you especially when you reread you can't see her when she's doing the thing where she like lifts them a little bit yeah
0: so we're going to discuss about the movies <laughs> and the german expressionists that we have.
2: <laughs> that's right and i was i was sad to realize that while these weren't the first ever horror movies and in fact the first ever horror movies were made back in 1896 um the first one being credited often as the house of the devil although it has a couple other different names um and then after that came like a kind of steady stream of horror movies that nobody gave two hoots about because it wasn't really until the 1920s when everybody kind of shot up and started paying attention to horror as a genre and it was absolutely in thanks to these two films in my humble opinion tonight we're going to be covering the cabinet of dr caligari not a for our Italian jersey people, that's not a shrimp or a seafood dish. You should know that now. I was all excited. I was like caligari, I love caligari. A little gabagul, a little calabari, a little caligari. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's that's not what that is. I was I was sad, you guys. But we're covering the cabinet of Dr. Caligari as well as the classic Nosferatu.
0: I, I want to touch on, I think that it's fair to say, because yeah, there were horror, like there were movies with horror elements prior to these two movies. But when it comes to, I mean, so many tropes that we recognize now as horror and gothic horror didn't exist before Caligari. And that, I mean, that was uh, 1920. Um, and we're talking shadowy staircases, oddly shaped windows, monster falling in love with the woman and taking her to the rooftop. That goes 1920. Then we got a, a murders at the Rue Morgue, which I was a little bit after that. And then we also have like King Kong 1933, where, you know, Hey, they, Hey, we're our, going to decade a here. We're going, <laughs> Cesar started a lot of this stuff like I mean you can see the same things in Caligari as you can see in Frankenstein and it's that's really this incarnation of all these tropes it starts here so yeah there was horror before this but, but I, I don't didn't matter. <laughs> the genre started and what we know today started until these two movies.
2: No, I 100% agree with you. I think that these movies really kind of begin horror as it becomes a, a genre and a trope. I think if nothing else, they definitely deserve the, the like in our heads, the first horror movies trope thing. But yeah, you know, it's funny you said Frankenstein because man, Dr. Caligari, is such to me a, a, a perfect um, like homage to Mary Shelley? But we can dive into that later. But let's first chat about the early nineteen hundreds because I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just kind of set the back tone here for German Expressionism. Now, Katie, I understand you—you you have a minor in German Expressionism.
0: <laughs> um, I was—I uh, was gonna get a minor in German. You would. You uh, would. But then my Expressionism took over, and I'm good. Never thing. <laughs> that's okay i applied for my depression crippling (laughs) depression and overworked burnout Uh.
2: (laughs) man that's expressionist right there i gotta give Uh, it to you uh, i know but here Um, we here we are delightfully wedged in between world war one and world war two and Uh, Germany's in this weird place, which it's going to stay for a long while, but it's, it's, it's interesting because really it's this precipice where, you know, films aren't, they're not letting people watch films that aren't German at this point. They're not really making any art in the shambles of world war one and outcome these amazing films, which are such a slap in the face to what everybody else all over the world is doing in the 1920s in filmmaking, which is instead of just externalizing and like shooting real life, they're taking it and making it super arty, super theatrical, and super, like, you know, I don't know, for lack of a better term, expressionist. Like, it was just such a beautiful, uh, to me, Caligari always slaps in that it is such a beautiful thing to look at. Like, everything about it, from the set design to the acting to to everything, is such an homage to what people were kind of pushing back against realist uh, and realism in, in art and kind of really starting to explore what would become the existential dread that would really mark the rest of human existence forever.
1: (laughs) Marissa, and rightfully so, Marissa had fears that I would not enjoy these movies. And for Nosferatu I had seen. This is my first watch of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised. And I think part of the reason why I did enjoy it so much is for every reason that you just said, Marissa, because of its fantastical theatrical, you know, production value when you're seeing this movie that it, it exactly like you said, it's not really shot in real life. It's, it's straight out of theater and someone who was a theater major, I sit back and I can appreciate the painted sets, the tricks they did with lighting to convey, you know, a certain mood or to change the time of day. I mean, you've got the Commedia dell'arte archetypes in this movie see wow
2: yeah. my basement just flooded a little
1: <laughs> you yeah no you i mean you say that again classics. but slower yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no it's really it, it's, enunciate it's, it, because it is i think because it was so theatrical silent film in itself has to be because how else are you going to express without you know sound but uh I, I thought it was really well done I'm assuming it's not the first movie with a plot twist but I felt like there was like it is couple... the first movie it with is... a plot twist I was like it really kind of <laughs> hit you with a couple of plot twists and I was like go ahead Germany 1920 I wasn't expecting you to come through with a plot twist but they hit you with a couple of them and mm-hmm. like I, I yeah like I said for me it was actually more like sitting and watching a play and I thoroughly enjoyed it that that moment
0: um, when we're you know we're with uh, Francis and the old man at the beginning and um, you know his love walks by Jane walks by and he's like oh there she is and then he's like oh and look like as we're going into the flashback it 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 does a editing back and forth with pretty much Doctor Caligari on a stage and it looks like he is entering from a stage like coming down stage toward us. And Francis is framing it like, oh, look, can't you see him? He's right in front of us, which is kind of funny because, first of all, yes, it does set up that what you were saying, that very theatrical quality. But it's also like it's an Easter egg to in the future when when we find out that he's actually a patient at this asylum. He's just pointing out the director of the asylum. Right. Um, But in that moment, it has this very like vivid play. And yeah, I think that's a good that moment for me encapsulates a lot of what you're saying about the setup of the film and theatricality.
2: Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it goes down in history as the first psychological horror, the first twist uh, ending kind of trope. And um, I gotta tell you, it's such a beautiful to me. A- and I think it rises, Caligari rises to the top of the pile in my head because if we're talking about expressionism as just a simple you know, um, a- a- attempt to present the external world in a way that manifests your internal fears and your internal, you know, internal feelings, I guess, and struggles for lack of a better term, there is no better film that does it for me than this one. And especially representing Germany's fears. I mean, cause listen, it, we're wedged in between the two world wars and there is no doubt that people are terrified of of the idea of losing control of themselves, right? Nothing is scarier to them than like this totalitarian control that's going to break down their neck and it's happening whether they know it or not. And I think this film speaks to the fact that I think they do know that it's coming. I also think the undeniably uncanny coincidence that a character named Caesar is the monster right before Hitler takes over is such a fascinating, like weird, kind of like look into the future of the fact that there's these these things that are coming gonna come along, and you're gonna lose your consciousness to it. You're gonna lose control of yourself to it. You're gonna lose your freedom to think. And I think a lot of that is gonna gonna come in in World War II. And this film like almost captured that fear without even fully ever realizing that it was. The other thing that blows my mind about this film is, as a psychology major, I am so floored by just how perfectly, delicately, I guess I want to say, this film explores how people were terrified by the thought of psychology at this point, right? Forage just getting started in the early 1900s, and the whole world is starting to acquiesce to this idea that there is something like a psyche, there is something about our brains that we need to understand. But let's be honest, uh, mental institutions are terrifying, right straight through like the 80s. So and I mean the 1980s here. And so I think this film not only captures the the government and the, the societal fears, but it also plays with like psych- psychology and like the, ir- the unreliable narrator in a way that is so fucking ahead of its time, you know? And this film just makes me gush and makes me realize why I love film as much as I do. Like there's no better movie to nerd out to and start this with than this movie, but I'm gonna shut up. I'm gonna let you guys talk.
1: <laughs> I think another first, um that this movie has this might be the first uh documentation of the bro code because francis and alan at one point were like look we're both into this girl whoever gets her let's remain friends i'm like dude it's the first ever bro code (laughs) oh my god that's so true and i gotta tell you hot take i i don't think
2: alan was the first choice i think she would have went with the dude that died that's my hot take like she was
0: she was mad (laughs) Yeah. Wait. Alan, Alan. did die. Alan. Oh, Alan sorry. Ward Switch died. it. Who is the
1: Francis? Francis. 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 Yeah. No. Yeah. I, that's Alan. what I'm
0: thinking. Is that? Yeah. I thought that too. Was that Francis was not the obvious choice there.
1: <laughs> Winner by default. You know. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Hey, take well, a win where you can.
0: <laughs> and uh, uh, on the list of firsts for Coligari too, it's also one of the first uh, framing stories or nonlinear storylines. I mean, it would be 22 years before Citizen Kane really like just like it was noted for that and this was one of the first examples where we're we're not seeing the story in a linear way which that so that's another just you know plot twist um framing story bro code there are so many firsts to this movie it's, so it's so true
2: and there is a yeah. lot
0: of parallels between Orwell's
2: style and this film um the director robert well, you're gonna help me pronounce it katie robert wiener wiener weiner 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 Vine. Vine hunts Vine. 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 i did it Wein. robert let me take Wein. that again robert vin there we go nailed it um and written by hans Zunowitz and carl mayer and can i say it that i'm like like vin and
0: mayer it's hey, like, mayor. It's, it's like know, all the time the super soft
1: mayor mayor, mayor. It, it's, for mayor. This, this is great because this is like all the times yeah, yeah, when yeah. i try to pronounce a spanish word and marissa makes fun of me for <laughs> pronouncing it like a white person No. So, yeah this I'm is getting, great now now I'm, i can i can make fun of the latino girl for pronouncing german words like i'm getting my i'm getting my co- <laughs> i'm getting my comeuppance
2: tonight that is for goddamn sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, though it's funny because every time my, my husband actually studied German as well, and every time he says things, I'm always so impressed because I'm like, mine, what? Like that sounded so good." And I, no matter how hard I try, I just can't get like the the inflection and the it's it's the Latino. I mean, it's be like be angry. <laughs> I am. So you would think this is this is a language you would think I would organically
0: be good at. That's but. right. I mean, no, it's a different kind of angry. There's like there's a very industrial kind of angry and then there's a fiery angry so you have the fiery
1: angry Well, wow,
2: yeah. latina german is I industrial
1: mean, yeah. angry. that's true you are a spicy <laughs> meatball <laughs>
2: i have a spicy meatball i am not a nine the
1: um you're the, the spicy meatball <laughs> you're not sauerkraut you're not <laughs> sauerkraut,
2: baby. I can't be. I don't know why. I try. I'm just, <laughs> German just doesn't come easy to me. Yeah. Um, this was, all, this is almost as hard for me as when we tried to do uh, uh, Japanese films and I had to try and pronounce those <laughs> as well. Um, Pronunciation is not a strong suit. Uh, the other thing that um, I kind of want to just dive into with you guys and get your opinions on is this ending. We're talking about this twist and and what, so are we to take it that he's just batshit? Or are we to... Assume that there's something bigger and more evil and sinister at large
1: here. I'm curious to get your guys' take on that. Well, like part of me in like my heart of hearts wants like the almost like butterfly effect kind of ending where yes, Francis is cuckoo bananas and he's in the asylum, but for some reason he has the wherewithal to sense the danger. And the director really is a bad dude, but no one believes it because. He's just surrounded by crazy people, so you're not going to believe the rantings of a crazy person. So mm-hmm. I want those kind of layers in it, but it might just be that Francis is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs.
0: And I think to that point, that is a perfectly acceptable reading, especially when you think about Janowitz and Myers. The reason they wrote this was a unchecked governmental authority. So essentially at this point in Germany, um, the... the the Spanish flu has effectively ended World War I um, and which we get to talk about, I'm sure, during Nosferatu, um, but uh, the World War One ends, and Germany loses, and they are now not just under a brand new Weimar Republic, which was democratically elected by pretty much whoever was left over, Um, But they also have all of these sanctions and all of this. uh, So they have all the shame coming down on them from the outside world, plus the shame of loss. And they're pretty much being told these are the things that you're allowed to do. And it caused lots of inflation, lots of depression, there was a lack of jobs. um, And there was a lot of government oversight. Yes, government oversight. And... (laughs) She's like, how dare um, you speak of government oversight? So, so like, you can, you can actually see it in how all of the policemen and the bureaucrats, like the guy who gives the permit guy at the fair, everyone is sitting on these really tall stools. They're looking down on everyone. There's like, there's symbols on the, um, you know, in, in unintelligible symbols of like government bureaucracy on the podiums. Right. And when um, they die, we're
2: happy. They had a cubit.
0: Yeah, like, you know, we spend what two minutes with the clerk and we know he's a jerk and it's okay that he dies later. Um, so it's that those kind of pieces where it's like, it's almost like this slow indoctrination of yes, Dr. Kari is obviously a bad dude. Okay, Caligari might be a bad dude. Okay, he's just using one of his patients. Oh, wait, Caligari isn't the bad dude. He's cra- We're the crazy ones for thinking that Caligari, but maybe he is the bad dude. So it's almost like this really slow inoculation into accepting that the people that are in authority do not have our best interests at heart. Oh,
2: my God. Yeah, so beautifully put. You're right, because that's exactly our, our fear. Right. I mean, and that's, it's so perfect, even for modern times, even if we juxtapose it with what's going on, everything that's happening in, in America today, because it's true, right? Like we don't, we don't know anymore. We question our own sanity. And when you lose control of yourself and you lose your sense of right and wrong and crazy and sane, then you're, you're really just a victim and you're just the perfect, you're the perfect, uh, uh, you know, fodder for, for these governmental authorities and for authoritarianism. And I guess that's what a perfect, beautiful way to look at what happens in, in the upcoming years in Germany. Man, that's deep. Yeah. The other thing yeah. guys that made me sad is that if it's not real, cause like, I was like, man, how awesome is it that he gets to just join the police investigation? Like just full on grab his Scooby-Doo badge, put it on, And go nuts. And then I was like, oh, no, he's just (laughs) (laughs) cray-cray.
0: And then wouldn't you want to be able to jump in and help, like, the fray? Fray! Like, how much fun? I have all the knowledge. I know.
2: And, like, the way that the set pieces continue to more and more dramatically take on these, like, interesting angles and, uh, like, bonkers kind of symmetry to correlate with how much we're realizing they're just, how insane this world is it's just so beautiful it just makes me fall in love with everything that they did on this film
1: Um, very obvious to me where there's a direct influence of where Tim Burton got his style because it almost seemed like you know there were certain scenes where I feel like you look and you can't find a single straight line but then there are other scenes where it's it's nothing but kind of straight line like it almost it, it just it just really worked I, especially when they're like running through like the wilderness or I guess like kind of the mountainous area we'll call it um I don't know like it well, the floor, looked like, the floor <laughs> looked like bacon to me but that's just because my fat ass was like oh bacon um <laughs> but no I really loved I loved the art style of it. And like I said, someone who, I also love Tim Burton movies. So to me, it's very obvious where there's some influence because you can see it a thousand percent in this movie.
2: I actually think that one of the most poignant things for me was that like uncertainty at the end. I read this, I read an article, you guys, called 100 Years of the Cabinet of Caligari, Why We're Still Living in the Shadows by Alex Barrett. I highly recommend it. We'll blink it in the notes. And it basically talks about how, like, this film is a human, like, a a mirror image of the humiliation suffered by Germany throughout the early 1900s. And how as the film progresses, your own kind of, like, disgust and and, and tension and horror towards everything that's happened progresses. And he said, you know, like, the, the biggest fear that this film really represents is that we don't know how it all ends. And that's the scariest part. And it was such a, like, like shudder to think of how it does end for Germany at, once we plunge into World War Two, but more importantly, like we don't know how. Like I think we're in a moment in American history where I think we're wedged in between bad stuff. Like, and I mean, I'm obviously the pandemic and everything else is still so scary. But I'm talking politically and on a global scale. I mean it's 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 the fall it's the season of remembering September 11th it's the season of kind of reflecting on everything we've learned in history and I gotta tell you I think we are I'm scared for where this is all gonna end too so this film really kind of hit deep for that for me as well
0: I've had a really interesting take on something and I think this plays into it what you were saying about kind of like not knowing where we're going and not um having any ability or uh, agency and I thought it was it, it kind of goes back to I think um Alan in the in the movie because something I thought was really interesting and I've always thought was interesting and I didn't really get it until like this watch was it's like so he he asked Cesar well, well how long am I gonna live and is like uh until tomorrow morning and it's like how does he that he's been asleep for 23 years how does he know that um, but apparently, there's this whole idea that, like, through sleep, he is able to have the knowledge of all. He has all knowledge: past, present, future. But then, it also begs the question because Alan becomes then a target when he asks that question. So it, it it's kind of a monkey's paw thing. Like, is is asking when he is he going to die actually bringing on his death? Like, do do you get what you wish for, or be careful what you wish for? And like bringing that back to the the like looking at how it is playing out in society, or how we want to look at our society, or how it played out in Germany is like, oh well, we wish these things, we want these things, um, but are we are we sure what we're asking for? Are we are we ready to give up the things we need to give up to for these other things? And I think that's that really hit me strongly in this one, that kind of idea where. Alan only died because he asked when he would die.
1: I agree with that. Uh, My, my take on that was he died because of his arrogance. Like of all the questions that you're going to ask, you're going to say, here's somebody who knows past, present, and future. And of all the questions you're going to ask, you're going to ask the one that pertains to you and you alone. And that was my take that he died. He, you know, I I agree. Like if he hadn't asked that question. Alan probably gets the girl. Alan gets the ride off in the sunset. He gets the girl. But yeah, I took it as, as it, his arrogance is why he was targeted.
0: Yeah. Hubris and all that jazz. <laughs> and yeah. I think that pulls into like the, like b- being, um, having hubris and arrogance of like, you can take that on a larger level and be like, okay, like, do we think we know we're going in the right direction or do we really know nothing? Are we really just in the asylum?
2: Ah, oh, so such a good point it makes me yeah. it like gives me goosebumps when we have these conversations they're so good um <laughs> no it's so true um and i think that's i, I- I think that's a great segue because I'm like chomping at the bit to tie this to you, because the one thing I keep going back to is this idea of like windows and mirrors and shadows and how like, you're right. We have so little actual grasp of like what we are and who we are that like these, these German expressions films make me like question. They like matrix me every time when I watch
1: these movies, I'm like,
2: <laughs> who am I like Derek Zoolander? Because at the end of the day, like the, the fear of how unreliable we are in our own, lives and like how how we're always just fearing the things we don't know and we don't understand or our own sat questioning our own sanity is so just runs so well through both of these films and again i i have to say that caligari is my top my, the top of the pile for me i know jackie you said you don't feel that way
1: no i i like caligari but given the choice of these two i like nosferatu a lot more i really really like that movie A good old-fashioned vampire movie. And I I am on board for the good old-fashioned vampire. And I don't know if this was a first for Nosferatu, um, but I do ask that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, please have a seat because Greta Schroeder was really our first final girl. She embodied it. She's the first, because she's the one that defeated Nosferatu. She is the one who ended up saving the day. She lives. Greta Schroeder is our first final girl ever. Wow, what are I you need making to. Her face for?
2: I know. I, I, I just. I need to chew on I thought, because She dies, doesn't she? She no. dies. Yeah, she dies, buddy. She gives her life for the. I thought she.
1: I thought when it's all said and done, she wakes up. No, I. I believe. I always. I mean. I, I always mean, unless she watched
0: a different version. There are like 20 bazillion. Brains. I know.
2: And, and that part hurts my brain. And I know that Katie, you are the one who schooled me on this. So I'm not even going to pretend like I knew this all on my own, but it, this had to do with Dracula, right? And Bram Stoker's estate.
0: Yeah. And so essentially yeah. as soon as it was like, as soon as Lady uh, Stoker got wind that it was um, <clears throat> even close to trying to be uh, Dracula, she came after it with uh, hearty vengeance, but the they had spent so much like on marketing that the company Prana films who produced it had already gone bankrupt. So they, so she, there was nothing to come after. So she was like, well, if I can't, you know, make money off of it, well then I'm going to destroy every single copy that ever existed. Um, She did not get all of them, which is why we get it today. But, um, listen, she was like, fuck around and find out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and it wasn't the first one. There was a Russian adaptation that came out and you can't, I don't think you can find that anywhere that came out before, Um, and again, it was her being like, "Uh uh-uh, like, this is my husband's book and I am going to get paid if you're going to take this story.
2: I mean, to be fair, there's no denying that it's Dracula, right? I mean,
0: like, as much
2: as it sucks that we lost some of the, you know, like some of the original versions and we're we're still kind of spinning our heads with all this, I feel like Jackie's Googling whether or not she dies.
0: (laughs) Um... Well, I get what, I mean, I, because it is, it, yes, they do take those major, like, things from, yes, Jackie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, for some reason, I was remembering when, like, the spell was broken, essentially, and I think in my head, I was seeing her get up. Yeah, she, no, she, okay, so she dies, but still, she saves the day. We'll we'll call it that. Yeah, she gives herself
0: over to save everyone, and, like, that is, I think we talked about this. Uh, in terms of like kind of being an Uber and being able to be so contented with your life and the Nietzsche vibe that um we uh like she was able to give herself in full understanding that everyone would be okay she is able to transcend standard humanity because of her gift of sacrifice essentially Mm -hmm. right so we can kind of Read that she's content in this decision,
2: man. It makes it hard to villainize the like the anti feminist undertones there because the idea of a bench of like, oh, <laughs> like how can I be mad? She did. She loved what she did, and it's true. It's like it's so easy to fall. And I mean, like you're holding your adorable baby in your arms, it is so easy to fall into the trope of well, I'm just going to give myself, a, you know, for others, and it's you know how that
0: goes, that old trope. Yeah, but like honestly, though, for like Hutter, for, which is the you know Thomas Hutter, who is. Clearly, it's supposed to be Harker, but what? Um, neither here nor there. Quiet, um, boy. You want to get sued? kind of a. That guy's kind of a like. What? A- a lame guy to give your life for (laughs) lame so
2: so true so true and the feminist and no matter how much i do love uh no sprawl too i think shrek's performance is iconic i think this film plays so beautifully with like the spanish flu plague fears uh the fear of the other all that other kind of stuff that we can certainly unpack but at the end of the day i can't like it gets stuck in my car you know what i mean this idea of like she gives herself up and she ultimately is like the typical sacrificial virgin, you know what I mean? Like, and she and it, it don't get me wrong, it's 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 so beautifully shot, but her death is so all for naught. You know what I mean? Like, here she is, like taking one for the team, but
1: you know what? Like, see, but I don't I mean, I, I gotta disagree on that one because she she okay, sure, she's a sacrificial lamb, but that's her choice she she didn't have i mean nobody had the gun to her head nobody was like no one said to her oh look here's what you need to do she you know what what harm can come from reading a book she picked up the book she read through the whole thing and she Man. saw that the maiden yep. can do this and she was like you know what Broads, i can i can Broads be, if
2: Broads just stopped reading then like, we'd all be better no
1: I, I, it was like it was her yeah. you know i think it was her moment of I can save the world, you know? I don't think she necessarily sacrificed herself for Hutter specifically. I think it was she knew that she she could save the world. She Would could she... end it. Mm-hmm. She could end the evil with, with her sacrifice. And no one, I mean, there was nobody else there in the room. No one told her to do it. She, of her own volition, was like, yeah, yeah you know what? I'm going to be a bad bitch and I'm going to save the world. I agree with Jackie. I mean, she, re- she read the book, which was against the wishes of the males in the room. She did it in spite
0: of their protests and with full knowledge of her actions, she took
1: control and made a decision. And that decision was, I'm going to save my town from the plague. Dude, she's the original Buffy Summers. Okay. This is, this is our first vampire slayer. Exactly. There's just no Xander to bring her back to life. All right.
2: If
0: only, if only she had Season one. one. (laughs) If only. Season two, you got well, or season Six, you got Willow bringing her back. I mean, just name a (laughs) time Buffy dies. You know, I got you. No,
1: we got we got our we got our first vampire slayer and Greta Shorter. I loved it.
2: That's fair, you guys. That's definitely fair. My take on it though is that is it not the sun that ultimately kills him though? But so he's distracted by the beauty, and that's why the sun gets him, right? So okay, yeah, I can live with that. Okay, yeah, maybe I'm becoming a softy in my old age, but I can live with your guys' argument. I think that's fair. I just I feel like it does fall victim to some tropes that I think would later become would become tropes. Maybe it's a trope before it's a trope, so I don't get to even say that. Yeah. Who um, I also love that the the vampires pug ugly. Like I think that there are some readings of this that say that it has anti semitic undertones, that it has fear of the other, which is problematic, and I think that's all very valid. But I find it fascinating. To take a like a, a genre that is usually a subgenre, I should say that is usually very ingrained in hypersexuality and the, the allure of the vampire. Right, the Lugosi really sets this standard, and from there it just gets sexier and sexier. I'm looking at you, Gary Oldman. But at the end of the day, <laughs> 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 but uh, but at the end of the day, like fucking Nosferatu
1: is is scary and rat looking and and yeah. You know? yeah, well, and they that, had to. What? I mean, they had to certainly make changes to try to differentiate themselves from Dracula. Um, yeah, and,
2: and Schmacula was taken, it, so.
1: It, well, it has a lot to do, so there's two, two
0: pieces to this. First of all, Nosferatu is a nonsense word um, that did not exist before this movie. lot of um, good nonsense word. So some, some, some historians have said that it is a mesh of two Latin words. Other readings say that it's um, the Greek word Nosferas, translation is plague carrier and then like the idea of a vampire was not or instance it existed before Dracula right um just Dracula was the very this very famous in like European folklore being rat like and ble- being a plague carrier those two things were already pre-ingrained in how they understood vampiric entities to be things that took your life force. because it wasn't always just blood sometimes it was you know, like like in What We Do in the Shadows. Colin, Colin, Colin Robinson. Colin, Yeah, Colin Robinson. Oh my God.
2: My <laughs> God, my favorite vampires. And, and my favorite in my vampires. best Colin
0: Robinson moment, let me tell you about the Greek translations of... <laughs> 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 oh, that was... I wanted to say this about, like, about Caligari and we didn't even get to, because there was the Max Shrek, which, okay, so the, like there's the, the whole fake mythology Shadow of a Vampire thing where he actually was a vampire. Right. And if you actually look at his like, he even though he did over 100 films, like he, the most known thing he did was Nosferatu. So there's like crazy mythology there with him. But like Conrad Veet, who did, who was Cesar in Caligari, he was, he played the man who laughed in right. that like, in that, which was the inspiration for the Joker. So he mm-hmm. was also an icon of a modern villain, but he was also the villain in Casablanca, like the main bad guy in one of the most critically acclaimed movies ever made. And it's like, I feel like outside of, not just the Nosferatu and Cesar made big impacts, but also like V and Shrek were equally awesome, like in their own right of being villains of the genre.
1: The movie, see the movie Shadow of the Vampire, because I liked Nosferatu, and I like uh, John Malkovich, Shadow of the Vampire comes out, and I'm like, well, I absolutely want to see this movie. And I think I love Shadow of the Vampire even more than I love Nosferatu. <laughs> I can't help it. I do as much as I love Nosferatu. Shadow of the Vampire is—it's just there's something about it. It's—it's it's witty. It's kind of factual. <laughs> Also kind so of I, not and fantastical. It's just a very good movie.
0: I, I totally agree with you. Um to that point, how do you feel about Werner Herzog's Nosferatu I haven't seen it. Don't. Okay. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, don't. Yeah, that's I mean, that's fair. And
2: you know me, I'll give anything a fair shake. But yeah, that's that's fair. No. Just don't bother. Yeah, <laughs> that's,
0: gonna be, that's gonna be a hot take, I think, for a lot of people. But I just think it's so indulgent and like I just ugh. think it
2: doesn't bring anything worth mentioning to the table. you know what I mean like yeah. like I just think it's it's it, it is what it is it exists it's fine but like just watch the original, right? I mean I don't know maybe that is a hot hotter take than than I think it is. um yeah. I don't know with no straw 2 I find it a fascinating like and I'm curious to get your take on this because I think you guys will have really interesting takes on this. I find it to be a fascinating almost beautifully aesthetic beginning to the male gaze in horror. And I know that's a hot take and I know you're going to have interesting things to say about this, but like, I find that when you're looking at the, the, the protagonist and, and his, his fascination with this woman, which is fair, right? I mean, and, and her beauty and all this other stuff and then the way Orlok kind of sees her. I there's something insanely like because I read this article that was like a scathing anti-feminist review that I didn't necessarily agree with altogether because I do think there's a lot of merit to what you guys said about how she chooses this for herself and there's something very feminist about that but I think it's interesting to look at like Mernie's choices with the camera and how he frames her and frames the shadows and the light and the way he frames his monster that is is it's like almost an advent to the male gaze in a very fascinating way that I find kind of Pretty, for lack of a better term, if that's fair.
0: Well, I would ask you to take those notions uh, that were presented and like look at Caligari and tell me where, like, are there no, I don't think there's a male. Yeah, I don't think there's a
2: male gaze in Caligari. I think there's just an artistic gaze that isn't objectifying the woman in any way shape or form because when we first see her you're like yo she ain't okay right like the first time you see her she's clearly like and then when you when you realize that they're in the scene, i'll be like oh it this it it adds up it checks out that but she wouldn't
0: the i mean she clearly has a lack of like agency uh or like she's oh, a vacant kind of vapid blob so sure. would that be therefore but Caesar as an object and therefore a but caesar under maybe, the male gaze? i don't Oh, that's interesting. I don't
2: know. I think that Caligari doesn't do that in that. Like the only person who really, I would argue like, well, I guess everybody like objectifies her to some extent, but the camera never does, if that makes sense. Because like the way the camera frames her is no different than the way frames anyone else in the film. So to me, I'm not watching this film as guilty of the male gaze, because I don't think that she's ever like a symbol of beauty in the way that, uh, Ellen, I forget her name and Nosferatu is. I, I think she's just another character a very unstable disturbing image in front of us. I don't think anybody is a figure of beauty in that film. I think everybody's just scary and disturbing. Everybody's got the dark eyes. Everybody's, you know, and and I think that maybe Caesar is is enamored with her in in his in that moment where he hesitates which I actually find to be a really cool moment because I'm like, "Oh, I think I think he he, he has a second where he fights against it. You know, like I find that interesting. But for me- It's a really Nos-
0: creepy, like all peace moment. With the oh Yoda. yeah, I love that moment.
2: But it's, to me, it's as good as the, the shadowy vampire up the stairs moment. But at the end of the day, I think, yeah, I think that Nosferatu kind of is a, a linchpin in this idea of how a camera chooses to frame a woman in a horror film where she's the beauty and versus the beast. And I think that that's a trope that will continue to evolve until it finally gets to like the eighties and nineties problematic male gaze that I know you guys don't mind, but I do. And, and I think that
0: in this moment- Or don't think really exists
2: at all. Fair, <clears throat> fair. Yep, fair. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's totally fair. Um, and and maybe it doesn't exist. It's like a unicorn, just like feminism. It's just a unicorn that I choose to believe in. But at the end of the day, I do think there's something to be said about the way these movies frame that woman. That's very different to me.
0: I think she's framed for an emotional response, the same way anyone would be. And I think like that. That's why I asked you to kind of put it up against Kalligari in that way, because. No, no matter which way we're looking at it, we're always dealing with this, we are focusing on this expressionist take, right? Where the there is an unreality in the reality that is being presented to the audience. And so how the director now or being this wanted us to um, perceive those two different women in the, um, I always find it's interesting. They're always in bed, right? <laughs> Um, I love that scene in Caligari, the dramatic irony when he's like coming through the window and the slow crawl up to the bed, so cool. Um, and you have kind of the same thing in Minos who coming up the stairs with the shadow and um, yeah. it's a slow build but I think it is more artistic than it is full of an objective gender role, I guess is, is the right way of saying that. Yeah, I, I, I can I can live with that.
1: I mean I agree. If, if we're going to talk about you know framing and how somebody is shot I mean I agree with uh I mean I I will actually agree with both of you that I think yeah there is a, you know she is the object you know she is framed a certain way but I also agree with Katie where it's you know the emotional manipulation of the audience you know she is our she is our damsel and and what have you but uh, the same can be said for for Nos- Nosferatu himself. Like, think of all the ways that he was framed, and and his shadows, and his close ups, and and his maneuvers. I mean, we're if if we can invent, you know, the the monsters gaze, because the way that the that you know he was framed just as as differently as everyone else, I believe, as she was. So I'm kind of. I'm going to split the difference and I'm going to say that, yeah, I agree that there was a male gaze in it, but I also, I I think there's more to it than just that because I think there's also the artistic choice and the emotional manipulation of the story.
0: Uh, So I found out something on this watch that like apparently is... I don't know if anyone has ever pointed this out to anybody in the entirety of Nosferatu. Do you know the scene when Hutter is first getting called by, like, the Renfield character to his desk, and he's there's a guy across the desk from him, and when he gets called, they both, like, turn and look at the desk? When you watch that scene, the guy across from him is Nosferatu. It's <laughs> Count Orlok he's got the fingers and the ears and you like it's such a it's a fly easter egg that i have never noticed before but it's count orlock across from him and i just was thinking about it when jackie was saying the monstrous gaze because it's like this weird easter egg thing that now decided to include huh. and I, I think that might be the first time that this kind of like it, it's almost Funny the way it's presented because he's dressed up like a clerk, just like making sure that Hutter's getting the contract, and
1: it's so crazy. How many times does Nosferatu <laughs> blink in this movie? Oh my God, one. I'm going to say none. Once, when the sign. What? Goes. He blinks once in this movie, and I know that because we a couple of years ago was I was at trivia, and it was horror movie trivia. And we nailed every single question except that one. We lost on that one. Fun fact: Nosferatu blinks a grand total of once in the whole movie. Okay, Max Shrek is a vampire. I've decided he mm-hmm. actually is. No, Shadow Real of Life, the Vampire yeah, was based on actual events. Yeah, and it's a true story.
0: Yeah, Max Shrek. Kind of watch that again, man. He
1: actually ate the script girl.
2: I
0: believe it. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Um, no, yeah, you're right. I, I it's such a the why movie. they actually ran out of money.
2: It is. keeping him
0: in blood. Like, I mean, seriously, easy.
2: he gets not hungry. <laughs> it's exhausting. There aren't a um, lot of
0: virgins. <laughs> no,
1: come on.
2: Well, I have to say that in my humble opinion, both of these films more than stand the test of time. I think they will continue to be studied in film school and for good reason. I'm super excited that we kicked off our uh fall of uh academia with uh with not only some awesome perspectives and thank you, Katie, for all that, but also mm-hmm. for yeah. what's too freaking absolutely amazing films who never cease to amaze me every time i watch them i fall deeper in love with both of them so anything else though i don't want to cut anybody short we might have missed some stuff
0: um so if i have this correctly it is hutter ellen professor bulver and orlock now what is the guy who plays renfield like the renfield stand in the thing? oh crap i I don't remember knock i think it's sounds right
1: i think it's knock
0: Okay. I last time we talked about this movie, we could not get any of the names. <laughs> we <laughs> could not. saying the
2: Dracula version. <laughs> we did. We'd be like, well, Harker. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Mina yep. does this and Lucy does this. And man, yeah. not
2: not to throw back to Mise on screen because I miss it, but Mise, what what Mise on scene in these films, huh?
0: <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Let's talk about the Misan scene of the <laughs> Seriously uh, both of these films <laughs> it, blows beautiful. my mind. It is. It's beautiful. And I love, I love that in the newer versions, if you're watching on Shutter, they have the old title cards in mm. cabinet. Me too. And that it's, it's like there's, it's so brings a different life to it than having just the standard title cards because that was the original t- title card, or the, I say title cards, but the insert cards as well, the dialogue cards. And um, so, like having that brought back every every res- restoration of these movies makes them better and it's so, been so fun to see them over the years and I mean let's just take a minute to um in- acknowledge the fact that both of these are 100 years old and like they are ah it's
1: kind of bananas to think a movie that is 100 years old is standing up to the test of time yeah 100 percent
2: uh, well, Katie, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting with us tonight. This was
0: absolutely a joy to have you. Love talking with you guys, you know, and of course, German Expressionism, I love. But there's lots <laughs> of stuff doesn't? I love, too. <laughs>
1: who, who knew that I would be down to clown with German Expressionism? I know. I'm so excited. And make sure because you're, you're a Tim, Tim Burton fan. fan. That's true. So you gotta. I t- <laughs> That's true. Tim Burton That's fan. That's true. Theater so major. What's not to love? It all lives. It all lives there.
2: Stick around, everybody, because we will be bringing you more history of horror this fall on Jersey Ghouls as we wax academic. So Katie, tell us a little bit about where we can find you these days.
0: Well, I mean, you can find me on Instagram at PsychoCC57, but I encourage all of you um, I will, uh, to visit Dread Imaginings. Um, the featured story of October is Mrs. Carlisle's Ritual Room. This is one of my first fiction published official so um, again, that's dreadimaginings.com. It's their featured story. And it's Mrs. Carlisle's Ritual Room. I Ooh. cannot wait.
1: All right. So we hope you guys have enjoyed the 1920s. Again, next episode, we're jumping to the 30s. Uh, Katie, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. And hey, everybody, check us out on your favorite podcasting app find us on facebook and twitter and instagram and all the socials just search for jersey ghouls you'll find us there jerseyghouls.com for all the fun and shenanigans also renegade film festival is coming up you still have time to submit your film filmfreeway.com until the end of this year right Ressa?
2: that's right we're running a special back to school promotion right now so it's a good time to get your film into the renegade film festival and also mr vernon we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole saturday to be here with the jersey ghouls but what we (laughs) did was not wrong because we are the intellect the jokester and the idiot and i'm pointing at myself when i say the idiot just because anybody needs clarification there Um Tropes who he would be? I'd be the nerd. I was always the nerd. Like Brian was always the character I I associated myself most with in the Breakfast Club. What you guys did it? Maybe maybe Ali Sheedy's character too. Uh,
1: yeah, I was always Ali Sheedy's character.
2: Ali Sheedy, really? really? Yeah, okay, fair. Yeah. No,
1: I was never the sandwich. Weird. Yeah, I was gonna say Pixie sticks <laughs> and the Captain Crunch it's, on the peanut butter. To be
2: fair, I would try that too.
1: Also the vodka.
2: <laughs> also, I I do love when she throws the bologna vodka. and the sticks on them. Yeah, that's
1: fair. Just to throw
2: the Um No, I know my role in life. I was a Brian. I was definitely so. All right, <laughs> <laughs> and on that lame note, oh, bye bye. Bye
1: bye. I'll see you then. Oh, so cool! <laughs> she it. keeps us classy. <laughs>